Hey there, welcome to the seventh episode of season two of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're bringing on nutrition expert and neuroscientist, Dr. Nicole Avina, to talk about everything from fad diets, the mind-body connection, and how to fight off a sugar addiction. Our conversation is filled with science-backed ways you can ensure that what you're putting in your body helps you feel your best and be your healthiest. Let's get after it. Dr. Nicole Avina is a research neuroscientist and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction, with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Dr. Avina has written several books and appears regularly as a science expert on The Dr. Oz Show, Good Day New York, and The Doctors, as well as many other news programs. Her work has been featured in Bloomberg Business Week, Time Magazine for Kids, The New York Times, Shape, Men's Health, Details, and many other periodicals. Dr. Avina is a member of the Penguin Random House Speakers Bureau. She has the number two most watched TED Ed to help talk, How Sugar Affects Your Brain. Hi, Dr. Avina. That was a phenomenal and extremely impressive bio. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here to talk with you guys. So before we really dig into what you're currently doing, I kind of want to take a couple steps back into your past and ask you what motivated you to pursue a PhD in neuroscience and psychology. And then once you had that PhD, how did that transform into the work you're doing now? Well, it was kind of, a, I guess, a interesting, a bit serendipitous way in which I found myself getting a PhD. I was doing undergraduate research in a laboratory in the psychology department, and I kind of thought I might want to be a social worker or a psychologist. I wasn't really sure. I was interested in helping people and understanding behavior. And the lab that I decided to do some research in just to get some research experience was actually a neuroscience lab. And they were studying the brain and brain mechanisms that regulated autistic behaviors. And so I got really interested in the brain and understanding how it played a role in behavior more so than I did, I think, psychology at the time. And so I decided to look into graduate programs in neuroscience. And at the time, it was a bit, you know, this is going back like 20 years. So at the time, neuroscience wasn't typically a, its own department in most departments across the country in terms of laboratories or universities. It was housed within another discipline, so psychology or something else. So anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up at Princeton in the Department of Psychology, and I was on the neuroscience track, and it was a really great experience, and I'm so glad I did it because it's just been such a wonderful way to have a career, to kind of change things as I get interested in other things, and it's just opened a lot of opportunities for me. That actually is interesting that you bring up how relatively new neuroscience is. I even think at Northwestern, where we attended undergrad, the neuroscience major was a new major when we started. I think it was in its second year. So this would have been, I think, 2015 was the first year they offered it, something like that. So it is really cool how much more we've developed really in the last couple decades in that field. Yeah, it's become really its own entity, which I think is important. 
one of the things that, you know, prior to that, I mean, people would major in physiological psychology or behavioral neuroscience. Those were kind of the buzzwords that were really code for what ultimately became the neuroscience section of psychology, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we kind of know what got you here, let's talk about what you do, which is actually really, really fascinating. There's so much to talk about. But I think I'll start big picture and just kind of ask you, just in general, you study both food to some extent and, of course, neuroscience and psychology. But those two obviously come together quite a bit. So what is the relationship between food and the food we eat and our mind? Why, why do those things even really kind of meet in, in, at some point in science? Well, I got interested in that aspect of it back in graduate school when I was starting to think about what I was going to do for my dissertation. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that we were, you know, hearing so much in the media about the obesity epidemic. And, you know, this was something that was becoming a real public health issue. People were starting to talk about it. I mean, we talk about it all the time now, but it was sort of new and in the sense that, you know, we didn't hear it as much as we do now. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that many people would talk about how they felt compelled to eat sugars that are rich in carbohydrates in the way that people sometimes feel compelled to use drugs and alcohol. And so it kind of got us thinking, well, maybe there's this overlap between the types of foods that people tend to overeat, these highly processed foods, foods that we find typically now in our modern food environment, and how they're impacting the brain. Maybe they're impacting the brain differently than fruits and vegetables and, you know, beans and protein and things like that. And so that's really where the idea started to see, you know, if food could be addictive, essentially, in the way that we know drugs and alcohol can be addictive. And so that's ultimately where I ended up in terms of a dissertation project was to develop an animal model to test whether or not sugar could be addictive. And from there, we ended up basically doing a series of experiments and published a bunch of papers around this whole idea to test whether or not different types of foods that contain sugars and these other ingredients that we see in our modern food environment can meet the criteria for addiction, according to the American Psychiatric Association. Did those studies you're, you're talking about and, and mentioned, they, they remind me of something that I've heard in maybe more of like a casual setting, but a study about rats and how when given sugar or like sugar in the form of like Oreos, or like drugs like cocaine, they would pick Oreos as often or more often, despite a common knowledge that cocaine is incredibly addictive. Is that similar to what you found? Yeah, we've been, yeah. So I think our research probably prompted those studies looking at, you know, the differences between cocaine and food in terms of preference. We, we've been able to show in our studies that overeating sugar can cause binging behavior. It can cause with signs of withdrawal. It can cause cross sensitization with other drugs of abuse. So animals that are prone to overeating sugar are willing to consume more alcohol. They're going to consume more amphetamine. They're going to be more sensitive to the effects of amphetamine and other drugs. We've also seen that there's changes in the brain. And so in my lab, we use a technique called in vivo microdialysis. And this is where we can look at the extracellular levels of different neurochemicals in real time while the animals are awake and behaving. And we've been able to see that one of the things that's unique about sugar and overeating sugar in particular is that it releases dopamine every time an animal eats it. Whereas 
if you look at, you know, a regular novel food like broccoli or, you know, cabbage or something like that, that's not going to cause a release in dopamine. And what we see is that this release in dopamine is similar to the type of effect we see when animals are using drugs and alcohol. Dopamine release in reward-related brain regions is a hallmark of drug and alcohol addiction. And what we've been able to demonstrate is that we can see it with food as well. And so we've been able to show that the criteria that the American Psychiatric Association have for classifying something as being a substance of abuse have all been met when that substance of abuse is a food. And so um, that's really, you know, kind of where I got started. And interestingly enough, I thought it was a dissertation project and it would end, but you know, I, <laughs> it's still going on. It's been 15 years since I graduated and it's still happening. I'm still working on it. So it's kind of fun to do something and start an area of research that you don't necessarily have to finish when you finish graduate school. <laughs> That is really cool and something that I'm sure a lot of people will uh, benefit from as you as you learn more and are able to share those results. I just think about my own, like in my own life with eating something that's like sugary and sweet, dessert-like, or eating something that's more like natural and, you know, doesn't have that same like sugar or even artificialness to it. And I'm thinking about the like how I could go just pound a bag of chips or eat a pint of ice cream, like no problem. And that, you know, you feel good about, like you feel good as you're eating it, but afterwards, you know, not anything that's even sociological, but just from a physio like physiological perspective, like, I, you know, I feel kind of crappy the day after. I feel like slower after like eating a lot of like sugar or maybe even like high fat foods, to be honest. Whereas if I'm consistently eating things that are, you know, more natural, less sugary over maybe not like a, a given meal, but over time, days, weeks, months, I feel better overall. Have you come across any research in your journey thus far that can compare and contrast those two feelings from like a neurochemical perspective? Yeah, it has to do really with the highs and the lows of dopamine and some other neurotransmitters. And so when you're eating a diet that's, you know, highly processed, filled with added sugars and fats, and just essentially not very healthy, what ends up happening is you go through these cycles where you're releasing dopamine in response to this large amount of sugar. And then that's going to be followed by a decrease in dopamine. That's going to mean that the receptors for dopamine are going to be less available than they were because there's so much dopamine flooding these synapses. That's also going to mean that, you know, your blood sugar levels are going to rise. That's going to alter your insulin levels, which is going to have an impact on your dopamine levels. So it's this whole cascade of like neurochemical and hormonal events that occurs when you're eating like that on a regular basis. And it essentially is like a yo-yo diet. I mean, people often talk about yo-yo dieting as this idea that people will be restricting themselves and then overeating and restricting. But I tend to think of yo-yo dieting as what happens when people, you know, are eating these highly processed diets and their brain chemicals and their hormones are simply yo-yoing back and forth in response. When you have a more balanced diet that's going to have more grains and vegetables and fruits and lean proteins in it, you're not going to have those spikes and those lows. You're going to kind of just be more even keeled. And I think that that ends up resulting in people feeling just better, feeling more sort of normalized, more homeostatic. And I think people who 
experiment with their diet and can get to the point where they've maybe made it change and are eating healthy for a sustained period of time, sometimes things click with them where they start to realize that, wow, I, I actually feel a lot better eating this way than I did eating that other way. And that's really the goal to help people make those types of changes. But then, you know, we're living in this world where we're constantly facing the siren call of McDonald's and Starbucks and, you know, all of these other places that are essentially designed to kind of pull us back into that dark world of processed food. And so people sometimes are doing great and eating healthy and they're feeling wonderful. And then they kind of get pulled back in and it can be difficult to pull themselves back out. And so that's where the struggle really lies. I think for most people these days is trying to find that happy medium where, you know, they can eat a relatively healthy diet and have some of these sweet treats and other processed foods, maybe once in a while, but not have it pull them back into that, you know, dark side of things. I actually, that brings me to something I wanted to ask you about. And it's really kind of more of an opinion question, maybe rather than a science question, but I'm sure there is a pretty heavy psychological aspect to all this, but we live in a world where we're constantly flooded with new information, these fitness influencers, health influencers, you know, to greater and lesser extent, maybe they're qualified or not to be sharing that kind of information. There's a lot of health fads going around. I mean, I can name a couple diets just off the top of my head, like keto, paleo, there's veganism, there's all these different options, there's intermittent fasting, and some of them are well-founded by some sort of research, but other things kind of just come out of nowhere, right? So how do you think that influences people's psychology and kind of their approach to dieting and health and lifestyle when we're constantly bombarded with new information? A lot of the times it's actually conflicting information too. I think it makes it so hard for people to figure out a healthy way to eat. And I think that the intention of many of these different programs is to provide the solution that people are looking for. But in reality, I think it just adds to the problem. And I think that since so much of our information now comes off of social media, we are constantly just being bombarded, like you suggest, with all these different diet options and promises that things work, these, you know, before and after pictures. And it can really make people, I think, even more despondent and, you know, more frustrated than they were in the past. I find that you're right that there are a lot of people out there who are self-proclaimed experts and um, they might have a lot of followers and they're able to kind of get a lot of attention and their opinion carries a lot of weight in that case. And I think it's just important for people to realize that, you know, just because somebody, you know, talks about something doesn't necessarily mean they have the expertise or the, you know, even basic understanding of it to really be lecturing somebody about it or be educating people about it. And I think that's where I think we need, especially with younger children, like I have little kids. And so my focus these days is I have a, a almost teenager is to really broach the topic of, you know, how do we use the internet? How do we use social media? And I often say, we don't use social media to educate us. Those are people's opinions and we don't really have a basis for those opinions. And so we use it to get information that then we can go out and search for the primary sources like good scientists would. But I think that that's easy for us to understand because we have a science background, but not everybody does. But I think we need to start to teach people, the everyday person, hey, if you hear about some diet or you see somebody doing something and it, it looks like something you might want to try, you got to go out and do the research to see what it's really all about. You can't just trust people and just go with what people say because we don't know if it's been fact-checked. Absolutely. I think something that makes 
this field and kind of this sector of society so interesting too is that there's so many layers to it. There, there's the layer of science, kind of like the hard facts about what your body needs, what your body actually does to food as it eats it, how it affects you throughout the day and throughout your life. Then there's the layer of the psychology of food and kind of food is a very social thing, you know, it, and it has been for, I think, really as far back as human history goes. I mean, there's so many records of it in, in all societies. Then there's also the marketing aspect of food, right? You know, it, it's at the end of the day, an industry the same way, I don't know, cosmetics or clothing are. And like you mentioned, there's companies that are kind of pulling people to, you know, either in the direction of, oh my gosh, come eat our greasy, delicious burger, or, you know, come buy our diet tea to help you get into your summer shape or whatever it is. So there's so many layers and it's so hard to kind of sift through that, especially as someone who is just trying to live a good and healthy life. So I guess that kind of brings me to the question of if you had one kind of most important piece of nutritional advice to give somebody who, whether they're feeling like they're struggling with food addiction or not, uh, just kind of like from the basics, what do you think is really important for people to remember as they, you know, make choices throughout the day? I think that one of the things that we've learned, or at least I've learned, and I've heard other people say this, so I'll say we've learned (laughs) through the pandemic is that we really need to go back to the basics. And I, I think that this really applies to nutrition. If you're not in your kitchen, chopping vegetables, washing vegetables, cooking food, and you're relying on you know, processed foods, restaurant foods, you know, stuff that you can throw in the microwave to heat up real quick, then you're not going to be able to find health. That's That's what I've deduced. Just based off of the way that the food environment is, we really need to kind of get back to the basics. If you're, you know, preparing foods at home and cooking foods for yourself and your family, you're able to control the ingredients. You're able to, you know, control what goes into those foods. Whereas if you're relying on processed foods, you're going to then be not in control anymore. You're losing sight of what your family's actually eating. And so my advice to people has been to really just make the time to make the food make the time to cook it yourself because there's always going to be those times where we're in a pinch and yeah, Oh, let's get takeout tonight or, okay, let's go out to dinner. That's fine. But if you can do the majority of your cooking at home and prepare your lunches and bring them to work, prepare your lunches and bring them to school or class, then that's going to offset all those maybe extra calories and, you know, extra stuff you're getting in your diet when you do choose to eat out now. And then I think that, that's really been one of, I think, the biggest hurdles for many people is that as a society has become normalized for to just rely on processed foods and to buy these meals that are already prepared for us and just heat them up. And yeah, they're a great convenience, but there's a cost to that convenience. And I think people need to start to weigh that cost. If it means that you need to spend an extra 30 minutes preparing dinner then that's what it means. If that's your, is your health as important as 30 minutes a day? Is a healthier pa- family as important as 30 minutes a day? I think these are the kinds of questions that people need to ask themselves. And I think that as somebody who relates to the kind of middle-aged person who's got little kids and a family and a dog, and you're trying to take care of everyone, plus you work, it can be a lure to then say, oh, let's just get these processed meals and eat them because <laughs> it'll save yeah. me time that I can do emails or do whatever I got to do. But I think that it comes back down to, you know, what is most important? And I think the most important thing is really just nourishing our bodies with the healthiest foods we can. 
And so if that is the cost of time, then I think it's worth it. I love that answer. Absolutely. It's something that I've heard time and time again that, you know, the, the old dodge that or adage that health is wealth. And at the end of the day, like your investment in your health is so important. And those 30 minutes a day, or, you know, maybe on Sunday, you know, you meal prep lunches for the week or something is, it doesn't have to be fancy either. It could be simple. And I think that's what people sometimes miss about it. Yeah. And any good habit, it's, you know, it's about repetition, doing it over and over. And as soon as we build it into our daily lives, it, it becomes easier. At first, it's like, oh, I'm giving up 30 minutes. But eventually, it's like, okay, this is just part of my routine. It's the same way, like, if you don't have some exercise routine that you do on a daily, weekly basis, going to the gym for the first time, it's like, oh, I got to take an hour to go to the gym. But eventually, it just becomes part of your routine. It becomes ingrained in, in what you do every day. Um, and that's... Yeah, it's so true. Absolutely. It's so, so true. And I love what you said about the Sunday, like batch cooking. That's something that I advocate people really do because that's a good way to just kind of take some time and get ahead of things. And I think it's important too. Like I, I, maybe it's just my preference. I love cooking. I'm, I, I'm a recipe developer. I've developed the recipes for the books that I've written. And I just find it, I think it's because I'm a scientist too. So to me, it's like, <laughs> You know, being a scientist is yep. following a recipe, essentially. And so I, I just find that the two are so interconnected. I think that's why I enjoy it so much. But it's also very creative. It's also something that I just find to be really satisfying to be able to, you know, cook something that maybe I never thought I'd cook before, or try a new recipe. It's it's can be a really fun way to enjoy new foods and make sure that they're healthy, too. I love that you said that being a scientist, like following a recipe, I'm going to remind myself that when I saw I'm running a QPCR on like a 384 well plate, that this is just like cooking <laughs> and maybe it'll be Yeah, cute. just say it's like, it's like making a cake. Just think yes. about you're making a cake, a very large cake. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I absolutely agree. I've fallen in love with my slow cooker uh, recently. I didn't realize how powerful of a tool even something like that was. You know, it really just little things. And I think to each their own. I mean, I also enjoy cooking. I come from a family that loves cooking. Drew comes from a family that loves cooking. And I really think that is a great kind of background to have because it makes it more enjoyable. But yeah, I think it really comes down to pretty simple, simple choices and things we can do to kind of prevent ourselves from going off the deep end, which, and not to end on a, I don't want to end on this tone. So hopefully we'll swing it back in the the good direction here. But I do kind of want to ask about some of your research that you have done on people who struggle with food addiction to the point where they develop an eating disorder and a binge eating disorder specifically. So, you know, we kind of talked about the different neuro, uh, the neuropsychological pathways that are involved with food and things like that. So what happens when those things just go so wrong and, and those people really kind of get stuck in a place where they can't help themselves and, and it kind of becomes this, this battle with, you know, food is something we need, but we also need to be able to have control over it. So what happens when people lose control? Yeah, there's a couple of things that happen. And I think with food addiction, it's been such a new concept. I mean, it's really only come about in the last 15 years or so that we've been studying it. And it's been a little bit more difficult for people because there's no, you know, there's no diagnostic code for it yet. It's not considered a psychiatric condition by the DSM 
for the AMA. So it's been a little bit difficult for people who do meet the criteria for having a food addiction to kind of get treatment because the average primary care physician isn't being trained about food addiction in medical school or learning about it. They're, you know, learning about it through their experience and through, you know, additional research that they may do. But there are options. There's been a lot of treatment programs, treatment ideas that have been put forth in the research on how to go about treating food addiction. We've done a lot of research in this area and it models what you would expect to see with drug addiction research treatment. Um, And so, you know, there's been some evidence that these 12 step programs can be very helpful for people. And they're kind of similar to what Overeaters Anonymous uses. So they've been around for quite a while. Um, There's also been some evidence that there's pharmacological treatments that could work. And so that's something that we've been working on, looking at different pharmacological treatments that maybe weren't quite so successful with reducing drug or alcohol intake. They might be more successful with reducing food intake because it's a less powerful stimulant in the sense that, you know, the pronounced release of dopamine you're going to see when you do cocaine is obviously going to be more than when, you know, you eat an ice cream bar. So that's something that we've been investigating is pharmacological treatments. And I think that behavioral treatments have really been the thing that most people are using. I think the people who are really finding that they struggle with this are, you know, seeking out the help of psychologists and nutritionists and people who can help them to better understand their eating behaviors and how to really kind of get a hold of them and how to make those changes so that they are able to eat in a way that's going to allow them to enjoy their life. I mean, it's a terrible thing to have to be thinking nonstop about eating all day long. If you're worried about what you're going to eat or you don't know what to eat, you're anxious about what to eat. And so I think that the goal is to really help people to navigate this convoluted food world that we live in so that they can be more comfortable. They can understand, you know, what foods they should try to eat, what foods they should try to avoid, because there are shades of gray. And I think this is something that is an issue when it comes to even like foods that are promoted as being healthy. There's many of these, you know, at the checkout line in the grocery store, there's tons of these like granola bars that are kind of marketed as being so healthy and natural. They only have four ingredients or whatever it is. But when you take a look at it, it's actually not that healthy. And so where do you like draw the line between, okay, you know, this healthy granola bar It's actually no healthier than a Snickers bar, but it's just marketed that way. So I think that that's part of the issue is that there's just so much out there and the marketing is not completely honest. And I think that leaves people, you know, with a need. And I, I, that's one of the things that, you know, we try to do in my lab and through the educational efforts that we have is to, you know, help people to navigate that, help people to better understand, you know, how they can make those changes, what they can do. I have a book that I wrote a couple of years ago that we're going to be re-releasing hopefully next year called Why Diets Fail. And in that book, we talk all about the research behind sugar addiction, what's the science saying, and then what people can do if they feel like they are addicted to sugar. How do they get off of it? How do they identify where it is in their diet? How do they make those changes? I really think education in nutrition is so important. I remember, I mean, we we got some growing up. I don't know if Pennsylvania does the same thing that Illinois does, but when I was growing up in the public school system, we learned about the plate. I don't know if if that was like a national thing or if that was a state thing that, you know, like half of your plate was supposed to be this and like the a quarter of it was supposed to be fruits and veggies or something like that. And there was this breakdown of, of what to put on your plate when you have a meal. The problem is, you know, most meals aren't really cooked that way. I mean, then what do you do about soup or chili or a sandwich? And as a child, 
you kind of learn these little fractions and things and the food pyramid and it all makes sense. But then you get into real life where, again, you walk into a grocery store and there's these, you know, healthy granola bars or protein bars or healthy iterations of junk food. I think that is a really big trend now is walking into Whole Foods and seeing essentially what is a bag of Doritos, but that's just remarketed and packaged with like more pastel colors. Throw organic on it. Yeah, you throw organic on it. And maybe that's true, but it's not actually all that much more nutritionally valuable for you than just the bag of Doritos is. So it's a really hard world to navigate. So I I think it's so important that people keep making the effort to educate people and, and keep learning about how this all works within the body. One thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is about your book about what women who are pregnant should be eating, because that just caught my attention uh, in the sense that I never would have thought that you should really change that much. Uh, I mean, if you're eating well, quote unquote, before you're pregnant, you know, you wouldn't think to change much of it once you do become pregnant. And I wanted to ask just in general what those sorts of changes are. And are there any other kind of points in adulthood that people should start maybe reevaluating what they're eating? Or is it really just pregnancy? Well, you know, pregnancy is a critical time because obviously a baby's growing inside of a woman. And so we want to make sure that you're eating all the right foods. One of the issues and one of the things that kind of led me to want to write that book, in addition to the fact that in my lab, we were doing research, looking at the effect of high sugar diets on pregnancy in terms of the health outcomes that they were having. And we were finding some pretty scary things happening in terms of the outcomes for the offspring. I also at the time was actually pregnant with my second daughter and I found that it was really kind of disturbing that there wasn't really any nutritional advice given to women other than just don't gain too much weight or don't eat, you know, toxic foods, don't eat things that are going to make you sick. And it, it kind of seemed a little insulting because I think everybody knows that when they get pregnant, like nobody says, Oh, I'm pregnant. Let me gain a hundred pounds. Sometimes it happens, but it's not something that people intend to do. And the same thing with eating, you know, rotten food, like we know not to do that. And so I found it a little frustrating just as a pregnant person that, you know, there wasn't more information out there. Plus knowing that there's so much information about how we can capitalize on the growth and development of a baby and the health of a pregnancy by eating the right foods, eating healthy foods, eating, you know, foods that are nutritious and good for us is something that I felt like we could maybe, you know, use to our benefit. And so that's what kind of prompted me to write the book was to really kind of go through week to week. And the book's called what to eat when you're pregnant. It's really just a guide for women week to week through pregnancy to better understand, you know, what foods are important in a given week, what's developing in the baby and how you can use food as a way to, make your pregnancy better. And, you know, it can really help to nourish the pregnancy and your baby. And it's just, I think, a fun way to learn about the importance of nutrition, especially as it relates to development. And the other point at which I think it's important for people to start to think about, you know, making a change in their diet is when they're thinking about getting pregnant. And that's actually the topic of a new book that I have that's coming out called What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. That'll be out April 1st. And the point there is to really understand what's happening as you're getting ready to have a baby or you're thinking about maybe having a baby. There's so many toxins in our food environment, just not only from pesticides and metals and the soils and things like that, but just from a lot of the preservatives and just other ingredients that are in our modern food environment that can have a negative impact on our endocrine system. And as a result can have a negative impact on fertility for both men and women. 
So I cover that a lot and really just sort of walk people through some foods that are really great for fertility and then also walk people through some foods that are really bad for fertility and why. That is not something I would have expected. And that's actually kind of scary. I'll have to read that. Not that I'm not that. Oh, my gosh. Not that we're (laughs) Drew's like running away. Not that we're I'm having children anytime soon. But this is one of those things where as a woman, I think you kind of think about just making sure that. You put yourself in a position where if you're interested in having a family in a couple years, emphasis in a couple years, you know, that you you put your best foot forward for the sake of, honestly, your own health, too. Right. Well, it's true because it doesn't happen overnight. Like if you decide, oh, wait, let's get married and let's like have a baby next year. Well, it's going to take some time to make those changes and to, you know, have them be reflected in terms of impacting your fertility. So I recommend, you know, the book for people who are you know, even if they're just thinking about one day, maybe having a baby, just to kind of keep it in the back of your mind about, you know, what are some of the types of foods that can actually be damaging to fertility? Um, And there's been a lot of buzz in the media lately about um, another book that recently came out um, that a colleague of mine at Mount Sinai wrote called Countdown. And it's all about how basically sperm counts are diminishing in men. And, you know, she's predicting that we're going to be extinct soon over this because of, you know, the environmental impact on sperm counts. And so I think there's a lot of interest in this, not only from the standpoint of, you know, Hey, I want to have a baby, but just from the standpoint of like, Hey, I want to remain fertile just in case one day I want to have a baby. Absolutely. And just for health in general, health is wealth, as you said. Absolutely. And, and, you know, for the betterment of our, our species, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Well, Dr. Avina, it has been a pleasure. It's been truly great being able to sit down and chat. And I really enjoyed it. I'm sure Olivia really enjoyed it as well. And we wish you all the best. Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And that is all for this week's episode. You can follow Dr. Avina on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at drnicoleavina and at www.drnicoleavina.com. She is also a blogger for Psychology Today. To catch our newest releases, upcoming topics, and science shenanigans, you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society. If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. Episode 8, our Season 2 finale episode, is coming your way on April 19th. Peace, love, and as always, science.